0: This morning we're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this morning. If you're using Pew Bible, you can turn right there in the Pew Bible to page 1003 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 5, this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 6. Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you are a living God. God who is active in this world. We get even a taste of that this morning as we gather in your presence, as we Hear once again the assurance of your pardoning grace. As we hear you call us to worship. As we hear your word read and preached. We pray as we do for all of our service that your spirit would stir in this place. We know that this word going out that we are too ignorant We are too stubborn, we are too proud to receive it, apart from your spirit attending to it. So we pray that you would make us ready vessels, that we would know that we have met with the living God of heaven and earth this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, Amen. This is a holy and errant, sufficient word of God, Hebrews 5, 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and way- wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Though so the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. What I want to do this morning is just take a little step back from Uh, the text and kind of reorient ourselves where we're at here in in the book of Hebrews. So I want to flip back, if you'll flip back to chapter 1, let's just kind of look back over where the writer of Hebrews has taken us this far. Um, And as we do so, let's remind ourselves of the context here, as we've done in previous weeks, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians that are being persecuted for their faith, or at least suffering to some degree for their faith, and they are tempted to turn back to the Jewish faith, and to abandon their faith in Christ. And if we were writing such a letter, a sermon, as many believe, to these Jewish Christians, you and I might be tempted to offer condolences, or to offer practical help. We might focus on the circumstances, or... We might give some some word of wisdom to the personal feelings that they're experiencing, but not the writer of Hebrews. What's fascinating is that what he does is he focuses their attention upon what is necessary and what is even more essential. He puts their attention upon the person of Christ. He wants them to see Christ, and to see Him afresh and anew. And So he's going to remind them of who Christ is. No matter what you're facing, he is telling them Christ is worth holding on to. So you go back to the beginning here, and and he reminds them in chapter 1, in the very opening verses of Hebrews 1, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, we are told in the very opening verses. We are told that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is superior to anything you might return to because He is God. He then shows that He is superior, He is greater than even the angels. He makes it clear that though Christ is greater than the angels, He was made like us as He goes into chapter 2. He was made like us so that He might be our Savior, so He might be the founder of our salvation. And He does this, as He says, by suffering and dying for us. But just in case they thought that this wasn't sufficient, one that upholds the universe by the word of his power, who was superior to angels and the founder of their salvation, if that wasn't sufficient enough to trust in, he then makes it clear as we go into chapter 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses who they want to turn back to. You want to turn back to the prophets? Well, let me take the greatest of prophets, Moses. Jesus is superior to him. And then in chapter 4, he takes him to the person of Joshua. Joshua who led the nation into the promised land and the place of rest. He wasn't a king, but he conquered and established and he ruled like a king. He provided rest for his people like a king. And yet Jesus is superior to Joshua. Because he gives an even greater rest from all our foes. And he gives us an eternal rest to come. And then, after walking through that at the end of chapter 4 and into our text this morning, he makes it clear that Jesus is a superior priest than all the priests that have come before him. Jesus is the Savior. He's a Savior that is worth leaning into. A Savior that is worth relying upon. These Jewish Christians can continue to trust in Him as they have trusted in Him before. He's the Messiah. He fills that one office, Messiah. And yet there are three different if you will, aspects of that office. He's a prophet. He's A king. He is a priest. And though they're tempted to turn back to what they knew in Judaism, he's reminding them that even all the prophets and all the priests and all of the kings that preceded Jesus were were but types of the fulfillment to come in the person of Christ, their Messiah, this anointed one. He is the perfect prophet. He's the perfect king. He is the perfect priest. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a wonderful summary in question 31 to this question. Why is He called Christ, meaning anointed? And it answers this way. Because He has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only High Priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of His body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. And our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom He has won for us. He's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect King. Jesus Himself will make this claim over and over again throughout the Scriptures. When we were going through Matthew, just as an example, in Matthew chapter 12 alone, Jesus claims that He is greater than Jonah in verse 41, the prophet. He claims that He is greater than the temple in chapter 12, verse 6. He's greater than the priestly order. He's greater than Solomon, the king, He claims in chapter 12, verse 42. He's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. He is the Messiah. Now, why all of this? Why tell you all of this before we go into this text? Because I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us in this text is he's tying together two of these. He wants us to see two of these tied intimately together. Jesus is the priest king. He's the priest king. We're going to look at that. But first, what we do, we first have to look at it as the role of the high priest as he walks through it here. in the opening verses here of chapter 5. And then we're going to look at this idea that Jesus is the priest king. And how the writer of Hebrews is bringing all of this together for us in these verses. First. The office of the high priest is described in these verses, and we see three markers that the writer of Hebrews gives of the Old Testament priesthood. The high priest was identified with his people, he understood their weakness, and he was called by God. Those three things. He was identified with the people, he understood their weaknesses, and he was called by God. The writer is very clear in verse 5 at the outset, or verse 1 at the outset, he says, For every high priest chosen from among men. That is, the high priest was identified with his people. The priests in the Levitical system were men. They were not an angel, they were not animals, they were not plants, they were not some ethereal being, they were not angels, they were not dead saints that had gone on. They were living human persons. Because, as the writer says in verse 1, they had to represent man as a priest, as a living man, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. As one who represented people, the high priest had to be a people, he had to be a person. Identification with those he represented. The writer of Hebrews, if you remember as we've gone through this book, has made this claim about the Lord Jesus Christ over and over, that he as our high priest has identified with us. Chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18 of chapter 2, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It was absolutely fundamental that a priest to represent the people of God before God had to be identified with the people that He represented. And so it is in ministry today it is a fascinating reality to me that God has chosen to minister to people and to see people change through people this is how he works he ministers through people to people we're in the trenches with one another The shepherd who smells like a sheep is on the path to being a faithful shepherd. The high priest was like those whom he served. It was the first qualification. The second, the high priest knew his own weaknesses. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. His responsibility was to mediate God's forgiveness to sinful people. We're told in verse 1 that he offered gifts. And he offered sacrifices for their sins. But notice, it was not only for their sins that he offered gifts and sacrifices. He also offered sacrifices for his own sins. Why? He knows his weaknesses. Since, as the writer says, he himself is beset with weakness. Mishnah records what the priest would pray on that day of atonement when they would lay their hands upon the bull that they were getting ready to sacrifice and before they offered it on the altar for the people of God, the high priest would pray this prayer in ancient Israel. O God, I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before Thee. I and my house and the children of Aaron, Thy holy people, O God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before Thee, I and my house. You see, even the high priest needed a mediator. As he is seeking to mediate the grace of God to the people of God, By offering sacrifices and sins on their behalf. He himself has to cry out for this grace. As the writer says in verse 2. Part of the reason was so that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness. He was forced to reckon with his own sinfulness first. Why? So that he might be compassionate. That he might have care, that he might have concern for those that he was ministering on behalf of. He could not be filled with rage. Oh, these sinful people again. He could not be filled with disregard. I don't really care for these sinners anymore. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. There was no place for exasperation because he was also a sinner. Think of the patience that Aaron showed in the face of all the accusations that are brought against him in numbers. I think of David's willingness to listen to all the insults and all of the mud that is slung at him by Shimei as he passes by him think of Paul as he writes to the Corinthian church and he continues to pour out love to them and continues to show them love. Though they say that he is weak, that he is an awful speaker, that he is a frail man, that he doesn't have quite the power in person that he does with his pen. He's a fool, they say. They all can do this because they know their own weakness. For the grace of God go I. Those who have the greatest comprehension of their own sinfulness tend to be the greatest ministers for the good of God's people. You can write that down. There's a reason that Jesus begins a Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning for their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The high priest was a man who had to know his own weaknesses. Third, the priest understood he was called by God. Not every Israelite could serve as a priest. It was an honor that was allowed only for some, and that honor was bestowed by God. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. You may remember about Korah and the rebellion there in Numbers 14, where Korah and we're told 250 leaders of the congregation of Israel will come before Aaron and Moses and they will bring accusations against them and they will say, oh, you think you are so great, you have set yourself up above everybody else. We are all holy, we are all set apart by God. Why is it that you put yourself up above everybody else? Moses, after he grieves, he will respond with a challenge to them. He will say, if Korah and his followers thought that along these lines, then they should go and they should offer incense before God, just as Aaron and the priests were called to offer incense before God. And so Korah takes up the challenge. And As he and these 250 leaders of the congregation go and offer incense before God, these uncalled men acting as priests, doing so, God responds. And he cracks open the earth and he swallows Korah and his family into the earth. And he pours out fire from heaven and he consumes those that would seek Seized the office for themselves. The office of priest, as with all the offices among the people of God, is not to be seized. It's bestowed by God. And all this, all this leads to the writer's argument in our text. He's walking through all of this. To get to this point, you see a high priest was always called by God. He always had his authority from God. You would go to him and trust him and allow him to make atonement for your sins on that day of atonement because you knew that he was called by God. And now what he is going to show is that Christ himself, you see, was called by God. It's not just as I've shown you the writer of Hebrews is saying that he is a superior prophet. It's not just that he's a superior deliverer like Joshua, a superior king. He is also the superior priest. He is a superior priest king. And this is our second and final point. Jesus is the superior priest king. Now, this takes a little getting at. We're going to have to look at it together. So I want you to look. Look at verse 4. As Aaron was called by God to this, quote, honor. That's how the ESV puts it there. To this honor. So Christ was called to this honor by God. He is a high priest by calling. Even the very Son of God did not seize the office. It was bestowed upon him by God. Now... Now look at this priest-king fulfillment. To understand this, you have have to see it in the text. The author makes a connection in verse 5. Between the two roles of priest and king. When he says this, he says, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. That word for exalt is a form of the word doxa. The word that we translate throughout the New Testament as glory. Two words. Honor in verse 4. Glory, in verse 5. To be made a high priest is an honor. So two key words here. Glory and honor. Honor and glory. Now turn back to chapter 2. I think this is his point. Chapter 2. If you look back at verse 7 in chapter 2, he's quoting from Psalm 8. And there he mentions these same two words. You made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him, and then our two words, with glory and honor. Honor and glory. What's the significance of that? Well, he's quoting there in chapter 2 from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 details that God created human beings in His own image, that we alone out of all of creation are created in His image. In that way, we are crowned, Adam was crowned with glory and honor in the garden. And as He was crowned with glory and honor in the garden by being in the very image of God, He was to bring that image to bear throughout creation. That was His charge. Be fruitful and multiply, God said to the Fill the earth with the image of God and have dominion over it. We were created to be His vice regent. To be a royal family, populating the earth, ruling over the earth, having dominion over the earth as his image bearers. That was Adam's charge. But he wasn't just the function in that king-like matter. He was also created to be a priest in the garden. You need to understand that the Garden of Eden itself was a temple, and Adam was the priest like figure in the temple of the Garden of Eden. The New Testament scholar G. K. Beale has done more to help us understand this than anybody over recent years and he says, if you think back and you look back to Genesis 1 and 2, there's a reason that we're told that God walked in the garden with Adam. It, it speaks of God's presence, but it's more than that. The idea of God walking is usually referred to as presence in the temple throughout the Old Testament. As Beo points out in Leviticus 26, the Lord promises that He will walk among the people of Israel and be their God. In Deuteronomy 23, the Israelites are told to keep their camp undefiled because God, quote, walks among them in the camp. In 2 Samuel 7, when God enters into a covenant with David, God reminds him that I have been walking about an attempt for my dwelling. He's referring to the tabernacle even as he's instructing David that a temple needs to be built. There are a number of other uses throughout the Old Testament Where he's making this clear, using this kind of language. For example, Ezekiel 28 uses language of Eden, calling it, quote, the Garden of God. And then, quote, the Holy Mountain of God, which, quote, contains sanctuaries. These are all unique terms used to speak about the temple throughout the Old Testament. And he's using it to speak about the Garden of Eden. But even if we move away from the language, Beale points this out. He says, a number of other lines of evidence help us see Eden as the first temple. The Ark of the Holy of Holies, which contained the law, which led to wisdom, echoes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which also led to wisdom. Both the touching of the Ark and the partaking of the tree's fruit resulted in death. The entrance to Eden was from the east, just as the entrance to the temple was from the east. Both Eden and the temple are characterized by the holy presence of God that brings wisdom. Adam was the priest king in the Garden of Eden, but he failed in his role as this priestly king. So, in God's kindness and grace. The second Adam, as we celebrate this week, was born into this world, as the writer says in chapter 2, verse 9 of Hebrews. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And then we have our words again. Crowned with glory and honor Because of the suffering of his death. He became man to do what the first Adam failed to do. And he offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf as our great high priest. And He gives us the very peace of God. And now He rules and He reigns as King forevermore. Crowned with glory and honor. Every knee bowing before His throne. This helps to make sense of why the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 2. And why he's quoting from Psalm 110. Psalm 2, verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That doesn't seem to have anything to do with the priesthood. Why would you quote from that, O writer of Hebrews? Well, now it makes all the sense in the world when you realize that Adam was crowned with glory and honor as a priest, king figure in the garden, and he failed. So the writer quotes from Psalm 2, this great messianic psalm about the same song, about the son of David. Who would reign as king and crush all his foes. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. Another great messianic psalm that mentions the Son being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is screaming to us. The fulfillment of the Messiah to come is caught up in this one person. Who is the perfect king. And he is the perfect priest. He is the one that was prophesied before. He's it. Priest and king. The writer of Hebrews is making it clear. You see many Jews at this time believed that there would probably be two messiahs that would come. One that was priestly, and one that was kingly. He's saying, no. Christ is the one Messiah who is the priest king. He is the promised one. The implication being, why would you dare turn away from him? But Here's a good question. How can he be a priest? When he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. Well that's why he also quotes from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll return to Melchizedek. We'll do a lot more with Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. So just briefly, Melchizedek is a shadowy figure that we find in Genesis 14 that meets Abram there outside of Salem, what many believe to be Jerusalem. And we are told that he is the king of Salem. He's a king. We're also told there in Genesis 14 that he was a priest of God Most High. He's a king priest. He's a priest of king. Now, how was he a priest? He's not descended from Levi. No, he preceded Levi. Like Melchizedek, Jesus does not receive his call because he was from the tribe of Levi. He preceded him. He is a priest forever without beginning. He's a priest king like Melchizedek was a priest king. Without beginning. Why turn anywhere else? That's the implication. Why would you turn anywhere else? Struggling with different trials. Different enemies. Different persecutions. Different struggles. Different sins. You're looking for a conqueror. You're looking for help. Why would you turn anywhere else? He's king. You're looking for comfort in the midst of pain. You're looking... For consolation, you're looking for help in time of need. Why would you turn anywhere else? He's the perfect priest. Revelation 1, the Apostle John will connect these two realities as well. He calls Jesus the ruler of kings on earth in Revelation 1.5. In the very next Verse, he says, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Ruler kings of earth, he's king. Who purchased us with his blood that he offered on our behalf, he's priest. He's the priestly king. He is worthy of all your trust. Three quick applications. If your Bible, if your Bible reading leads you to anything but Christ, you're doing it wrong. The writer of Hebrews is is showing these Jewish Christians that all that they loved and treasured in the Old Covenant was but types and shadows of what is fulfilled in Christ. All those prophets, and all those kings, and all of those priests, and all of those promises, and all of that hope, all realized in Christ. It's like when Jesus is on the the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and He opens the Scriptures to them and shows them how all the Scriptures spoke of Him. the writer of Hebrews is giving them a picture of fulfillment in Christ. If you read your Bible and it leads you to anything but Christ, you are doing it wrong. Friends, you read the Bible to treasure and know and delight more in Christ. Second, if your trials lead you to anything but Christ, you're doing it wrong. These Jewish Christians are turning the wrong way. They're turning back instead of pressing in. Turning back instead of pressing in. Your trials are not a reason to abandon Christ, but rather provide every reason to press more into Christ. He is the priest who will minister every comfort you need. He is the king Who triumphs over every single one of his and our foes. And lays them as a footstool beneath his feet. You don't turn away from him in the midst of trials. You turn to him. Where else would you go? If your trials lead you to anything but Christ. You're doing it wrong. Keep pressing into him. Finally. If your life is leading you to anything, but ultimately Christ, you're doing life wrong. He's the great treasure. He's what you were created for. We celebrate this week the gift of Christ, And Christ coming into the world for sinners greatest of gifts, have you received that gift? Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your kid, not the person in the pew next to you. Have you received this gift? Do you know Christ and does Christ know you? Everything else is a fool's errand. No one on their deathbed has regretted pursuing Christ. None. There are plenty who wish they'd spent less time and energy pursuing riches and escape and sex and prestige and recreation. Because they never satisfy. He does because He restores and He even supersedes what was lost and what our hearts are aching for. The picture we receive of eternity in Revelation 20, 21, 22 is that you have this new Jerusalem that descends out of the heavens and heaven comes upon earth. And there on earth, this restored earth, It is now populated and only populated by those who have had the image of God completely and utterly restored to them. Crowned with glory and honor. And we are dwelling with Him and He is dwelling with us. It says that He chooses to make His home among us. Do you know what that is? It's just the temple new heavens and the new earth will just be an everlasting temple where we dwell with God and God dwells with us, that our king sits enthroned, and guess what? You get to sit enthroned with him, that our priest is forever there interceding for us, ever appearing as a lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, reminding us for all of eternity in His hands, with the nail scars in His hands and our names written upon His hands, that He has purchased our salvation, that we can never be lost again. And He shall ever speak to us. It's our great prophet. The words of peace and the words of comfort and the words of belonging. But just dwell with him and he dwell with us. That's only yours if he's your Savior. Where else are you going to turn? He's a perfect prophet, perfect priest, and perfect king. He's worth pursuing and holding on to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you this morning. You who are crowned with glory and honor on high. very Son of God, the second Adam, anointed one, Messiah Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, our Savior, our friend. Truly, we are not worthy. And we shall be everlastingly thankful. That you have made us yours. And that you have made you our own. And we find that we are rejoicing in it this week. Fresh and anew. But a gift. We have in You. We pray all of this in Your strong name. Our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.